0: Sermon number 113. That means we're back in John chapter 12. So if you'd like to turn there, John chapter 12. Huge words uh, by our Lord. Uh, Not huge font size, but huge in their intended meaning. Our Lord is in his last week on the earth. It's the Passover time. People are hearing him say these things. Various parties are there. He begins in verse 27, saying, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, note verses 31 and 32, because that's where I left off last time. There are three assertions by our Lord, and there's a relation to his death by by crucifixion. Now is the judgment of this world, 31a. Now is the ruler of this world, the ruler of this world will be cast out, 31b, and I will draw all peoples to myself, 32b. Those are the three assertions. Judgment is of this world, rule of the world will be cast out, draw all people to myself. Now, the best way to understand these three assertions is that they are results of Christ's death. If I am lifted up from the earth, three results will come about. As a result of our Lord's death by crucifixion, at least these three things will happen. The judgment of this world The ruler of this world will be cast out, and our Lord will draw all peoples to himself. That's kind of review. Now, we're at the end of verse 31. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Okay, What does that mean? Most informed Bible readers have the good instinct, and I assume most of you are going to do this, to relate the words ruler of this world to the devil or Satan right? When you read that, that's probably your default interpretation. Our Lord spoke of him in John 8, of this devil or Satan. You are of your father the devil, he told the Pharisees, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. So Jesus believed in a real devil that he calls a murderer from the beginning, so he's going back, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. When did he tell his first lie to humans? In the garden, remember that. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is called the god of this age. By the way, we're going to look at these texts in two or three weeks when I get back, and I'll explain more of it. So I'm not going to tell you what I think the God of this world means. I know it signifies the devil, okay? He blinds the spiritual sight of unbelievers so that they don't see our Lord for who he is. You know, the devil has something to do with the blindness of the souls of certain people on the earth so that they might not see Christ for who he is? And the answer is yes. Well, then he's omnipresent. No. But as I learned last week from Dr. Dolzell, even though he's not omnipresent, he's probably pretty fast. How fast can angels, fallen or unfallen, move? We don't know, right? Probably pretty fast. Anyway, that's for another time. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In the book of Revelation, he is called the great dragon, that serpent of old, serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. So those texts come after John chronologically, right? Those 2 Corinthians... Ephesians and Revelation were written after our Lord said this. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said, how do we understand now is the judgment of this world? Well, are there texts after Jesus said that that seem to expound or explain what that means? And I said, yeah. It's, and you know, if there are, that means it's God's word on God's word, right? So we looked at texts in, in the apostles that seem to help us with the judgment of this world. Well, the same thing is true of this. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. If we ask the question, did the apostles understand these words of our Lord and write about them someplace, we could say, we would say yes. Second Corinthians 4, at least. Ephesians 2, at least. And Revelation 12. In the coming weeks, I hope to prove to you that this instinct that most Bible readers have of identifying this individual in our text as the devil, is a right instinct. Somehow, in some way, our Lord's death by crucifixion affects the devil. Now, in the early church, there was this ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. Have you ever heard of that? Now you have. The crucifixion was uh, something that Jesus paid to the devil. You don't like that view, do you? It's like, no, the devil's not in charge here. But it is weird to think of somehow, some way, our Lord's death by crucifixion affects the devil? The answer is yes. And then the million-dollar question is, how? I'm not telling you today. I will tell you a little about that at the end. But just how it does, we'll have to wait for a future sermon in detail. But to show you briefly that this is the right way to read this verse, um, listen to 1 John 3.8. You've heard this before. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, So there's the same human author, John. After Jesus said these words... To me, it seems like obvious First John three eight and John twelve thirty-one B have something to do with each other. I would say Second Corinthians four and Ephesians two and the revelation passage as well. So this makes it, first John three eight, makes it very clear that the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh is for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. Now all the mechanics of how that's done, we'll get to it. But this morning. We're going to take a brief detour from our text. Yeah. In order to get everyone's mind stocked with scriptural information necessary to make sense of these words, the better you know the Old Testament, the easier it is to f- determine what our Lord means here. Now, We're going to use the New Testament as well because that's God's word on God's word, right? So if we went to the Old Testament asking this question, what in the world does Jesus mean in John 12, 31b? Now the ruler, uh, a prince of this world shall be cast out. If we went to the Old Testament, somebody already said it, rained on my parade. We would go back to Genesis 3.15, right? Which, that's what I'm going to do. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is, this is Yahweh speaking, God speaking, after the fall into sin, after the crafty serpent, an instrument, a created instrument of Satan, that serpent of old, the devil, used a creature to deceive the woman who then took and gave the fruit to her husband and he ate. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And here's the most important thing we'll concentrate on. He, see see what just happened there? He shall bruise your head and you, devil, in the person of the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So we have we have a he that'll come from a woman that ends up delivering uh, uh, bruises the head of the serpent. Some of your versions might say crush. Uh, it's a synonym for that word. Who likes bruise and who likes crush? I like crush better, okay? The skull-crushing seed of the woman, to borrow a a phrase from one of my friends. That's what's being promised here. The skull-crushing seed of a woman, an individual, will come from an individual woman. A, A man will come from a woman without a man. I think that's in the text as well. Let's look at the context of Genesis 3.15, because this will help us see how I think this is in the mind of our Lord. Um, and a lot of other Old Testament texts, we're not going to go to all those. I preached on all those before, but Genesis 3.15 has a context. The text occurs after the account of creation and the, the fall into sin. God, that is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth and mankind, male and female, in the space of six days, and then God rested, and all was pronounced very good, Genesis one thirty It is not now all very good, however. Adam and Eve sinned, and God announces curses upon the serpent, upon Eve, and upon Adam, and that's in Genesis 3, 8 through 19. Both Adam and Eve blame others for their sin. Listen to this in Genesis 3, 11 through 13. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree and i ate and the lord said to the woman what is this you have done the woman said the serpent deceived me and i ate so in 3:14 through 19 the lord delivers his curse in light of sin he addresses the serpent first in verses 14 and 15 he addresses Eve in verse 16. He addresses Adam in 17 through 19. So there's the context. If you go forward in uh, the context to chapter 4, chapter 4 recounts the births of Cain and Abel. And it's of interest to note Genesis 4.1, which reads, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, And she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, I've said this before. If you have a New American Standard, in the margin, there's a marginal reading that says something like, I have gotten a man, the Lord. That's a real wooden, literal translation of the Hebrew. Eve says, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord. That's interesting. What in the world does that mean? I think I've told the story. The first time I ever heard somebody suggest that Eve thought she gave birth to the skull-crushing seed of the woman was actually in the fall of 1986. I was 12 years old. I was a freshman in seminary, and one of the courses I took was on the book of Genesis, and our systematic theology professor, was teaching us Doctrine of God one hour and Genesis the next hour, and he suggested that interpretation. Of course, you're a first-year student. On the one hand, you're going, no way. On the other hand, you're going, that's pretty wild. How could that be? Eve thought she had given birth to the skull-crushing seed of the woman? How in the word world would she know that Genesis, the words of Genesis three fifteen, and that fast. Well, we don't know how fast. By the way, we don't know how long it took for her to. Was she pregnant before they sinned or after? We, we don't know. Okay, seems like they sinned pretty quickly. But at some point after that, after going through the process of what do you call that, bearing children, um, she says this. She makes this pronouncement. Could her and Adam have gotten more revelation from God than Moses writes here? Yeah. Was there enough revelation there that they could draw the conclusion, God's going to take care of all the problems that we brought in through being duped by the serpent, through, a, through an individual? I, I think there is. How much could the Spirit of God work on their minds in terms of the intent, the divine intent of these words, as much as he wanted to. You know, there's some things we don't know. But we do know she said this. And I I think I've quoted this before. I'm not going to do the long quote. But here's a a German, Protestant German, at the time of the Reformation, commenting on Genesis 4.1, I've gotten a man, the Lord. The poor woman thought that she had just given birth to that man or to the son of the virgin who was promised earlier and whom she knew through the Holy Spirit to be not only human but also our true Lord and God. Wow. So having forgotten all the sorrow that befell her during childbirth, she exalts with exceedingly great joy and imposes on him the name Cain, that is, treasure, granted, The honorable woman is wrong. She had not given birth to Christ, the repairer of the human race, but to Cain, a destroyer and murderer of the human race. He was of the evil one. Remember, John says that about Cain. Nonetheless, She clearly shows that she had accepted the gospel about the woman's seed with great faith, having received every consolation from this gospel, and that she credited her eternal salvation to the unique seed of the woman, that is, to Christ, the Son of God. Now, if he's right, of course, when I say that, you know my view. I think he's right. I think they had a messianic understanding of this skull-crushing seed of the woman curse, if he's right, this indicates that Eve saw in the curse on the serpent good news and bad news. Bad news for the serpent, good news for others. This would be a display of divine mercy in the midst of divine judgment. Though she was wrong about the timing of its fulfillment, according to this interpretation, Eve understood the basic elements of the intent of the curse on the serpent. It meant good news for man. Though some shy away from that interpretation, it is at least plausible, especially in light of the rest of the Bible. I think it's more than plausible. So what is the best view of Genesis 3.15? You've heard me say, some people say, it's the curse on literal snakes, and that's why we're perpetually afraid of them. I can remember in the late 1960s my brother wrapping a snake around his neck and walking up to the kitchen window to scare my mother. There was only one person that was afraid of snakes then, and it wasn't my brother. That's, that's it's like that's not a that's not a good interpretation. I'm not going to tell you who throughout history have held that view because you go really. But I think the best view is here is the beginning of the messianic message of the Old Testament, the Messianic view of this verse asserts that Genesis 3.15, I'm quoting somebody, ultimately predicts the coming of a future individual, a seed who will have victory over the serpent through his own death. This view of this text sees it as the first gospel promise Finding its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. This view of this verse, which I think is the right view, is the basis upon which we sing these words Sin's bond severed, we're delivered. Christ has bruised the serpent's head. Okay, that's hymn number 174. Where do you think he got that from? He got it from this. So let's look at the text finally. We looked at its context. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now we're going to look at this third part of this conflict. The third part is he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the third tier of the curse or its climax, I think this is the climax, and it individualizes the serpent. You see that? You and the seed of the woman, he and him. So we got very early on in the Bible, we have conflict. Uh, Not conflict resolution yet. It's going to be resolved. But the prediction of conflict, ultimately, not just between good and evil, God and the devil, God's people and demons. But somebody behind the serpent and some him who comes from a her. This leads to the expectation of a single seed of the woman who would deliver a decisive blow to an individualized seed of the serpent. Notice that, uh, if you have the New King James Version, it individualizes and personifies her seed by using the pronoun he in the very next clause. That's very important. There's an ancient Greek translation of this verse that translates all the pronouns as singular. You, twice. Her, once. He, twice. Once and him once. I'm going through all these details so that you're convinced. This is talking about what Jesus is talking about in John 12. It's just using different words. There's a he in John 12 and another he in John 12, the I of John 12. There's, there's the prince of the world, an individual, singular, something, and there's the I, of the, if I be lifted up. And what I'm saying is, John 12, 31b is contained in different words in Genesis 3.15c. The verbs here are all future. They're all talking about something in the future in John 3.15. John 3.15. Genesis 3.15, you knew it was Genesis. Right? They're all future tense. At least they are translated that way in the, in the uh, Greek version of this Hebrew passage. All this is of interest because it shows that at least some, some ancient Jews actually interpreted this like Christians do. Interestingly enough, this Greek translation of the Old Testament was written before the incarnation. And you have Jews translating the Hebrew into Greek, and it looks like Christians could have done that. The argument for taking seed, implied by the pronouns he, you, and him in the third tier of this conflict, as future individuals, are as follows. First, the singular pronouns in the third tier find as their dependent word or antecedent, seed. Second, as noted above the term seed, can and does it can refer to either plural persons or an individual. And it happens in the book of Genesis where this word seed is in, in one context. We're not going to go there because it's getting too technical now. I'm looking at my notes going, this is, this is not good. Uh, there's another place in the book of Genesis where the word seed is used in the same passage where it's clearly referring to a group and then it's clearly referring to an individual Okay, I think the same thing's going on here. Seed seems to be more plural at the beginning, but by the time you get to the end of Genesis 3.15, the third tier, it's individualized. This seed of the woman is not the church. This seed of the woman is not all believers. This seed of the woman is not a plural entity. It's an individual male person that comes only from a woman. It's a man from a woman without a man. By the way, does the Old Testament ever pick up on that kind of teaching? A man from a woman without a man. And the answer is, depending on how well you know your Bible, you're going to say, yes, it does, right? In Isaiah, the virgin passage in 7.14, picked up by the New Testament, and the New Testament says, hey, remember what they said? This is it right here. But a, woman, a man from a woman without a man... Predates Isaiah. Where do you think Isaiah got it from? Besides the Lord. Moses. The canonical writers of the Hebrew Old Testament read the other guy's writings, by the way, and depended in part on them to say what they said. So what Genesis 3.15 contains is a, is a curse promise, curse slash promise that an individual seed of the serpent will be bruised, crushed, or destroyed by an individual seed of the woman who will suffer while bruising, crushing, and destroying the seed of the serpent. That's what's there. Now, there's another thing to consider that I think helps with this, because some people take this view, it's the minority view throughout history to deny this, by the way, as far as I can remember. Um... And they say, wait a minute, how can the... This is a curse. Read the Bible. It says it's a curse. And it's on the serpent. How in the world are you turning it into the gospel? How can a curse be the good news? It's a a fair question. Um, This text comes after creation and the fall of man, and some who don't take Genesis 3.15 as messianic claim that it is highly unlikely that a message of hope is contained in this text because it is, in fact, a pronouncement of judgment. Right? It is. It's a pronouncement of judgment. So is John 12, 31b. And most Christians, when they read it, they go, well, they don't go, they don't say this, but I'll put this in your brain. There's both judgment and mercy in those words. Now the prince the 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 Prince of this world shall be cast out bad news for somebody, good news for somebody else in the one and the same act right I think you would say that about the other statement in john twelve thirty one now is the judgment of this world doesn't sound good for somebody it sounds good for somebody else that's what's going on here there's A man, I read his book many years ago, and I have a long quote from him, and if it's good, I'll keep reading it. If it won't, I'll just paraphrase it. He says this, that the God of mercy should offer hope in the midst of judgment is not surprising. In fact, in the early chapters of Genesis, he does this regularly. For example, after judging Cain for murdering his brother, God mercifully placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him, thereby offering hope in the midst of judgment. Also, when God judged the earth for its ever-escalating sin in Genesis 6 through 8, that's the story of Noah, he chose to show mercy to the family of Noah, saving them and granting hope in the midst of judgment. Talk about hope in the midst of judgment, there it is. You and your families in the boat and all those animals and there's A universal, catastrophic, judgmental flood of the rest of the earth. Mercy in the midst of judgment. Additionally, when God judged Babel and scattered humanity over the earth, he also chose to call Abram out of Ur of Chaldees and bring him to the promised land, thereby offering hope in the midst of Judgment. Likewise, when God, do I have to keep going? I don't have to keep going. You just keep going. In the book of Genesis itself, there's judgment and mercy in the same divine acts. If we go into the book of Exodus, there's that huge judgment mercy event we call the Exodus from Egyptian bondage, where some are being saved and some are being judged at the same time by God. And of course, all of that sets up the foolishness of the cross, right? What a weird thing. That's why Paul calls it foolishness because if you don't look at it with scriptural eyes, you're going, yeah, you guys say he's God incarnate and he he, di- he died, the devil got him. What a weak, pitiful martyr. These, these ironies, things turning out maybe the way you didn't think they would are called by some people redemptive reversals where god in fixing this world kind of does the almost opposite of what you think he should do you know if i was god i would just cleaned it all up immediately well he didn't sorry you're not god thank god so the quintessential event of scripture is the crucifixion of our Lord. It's the most mysterious one as well. It's the most, I would say, ironic one as well. But this irony of how God works doesn't start at the cross, okay? It's in Genesis 3.15, too. And by irony, I mean a state of affairs which at first seems contrary to what one ought to expect. Let's think about Genesis 3.15 and this irony that I'm talking about. The serpent deceived Eve, and she took and gave the fruit to Adam. The image bearers, Adam and Eve, sinned and brought sin and its curse into the world of man. But God will cause the seed of the woman to undo what was done and destroy the one who tempted them in the first place. As one man says, you deceived by means of the woman, you will fall by the woman's seed. Now, we might, we might think, well, he, de- he deceived, uh, he got to Adam through the woman, so God should just wipe them all out. Okay, you might read it that way and think, well, that's what should happen. You know, if I was omnipotent, I'd flex my biceps and flick them off into obliteration. It's not what God does. Listen to Martin Luther. These are in quotes. Through the woman you, Satan, set upon and seduce the man so that through sin you might be their head and master. But I, in turn, shall lie in wait for you by means of the same instrument. I shall snatch away the woman And from her, I shall produce a seed, and that seed will crush your head. You have corrupted flesh through sin and have made it subject to death. But from that very flesh, I shall bring forth a man who will crush and prostrate you and all your powers. Unquote. I sure hope Martin Luther's right, and I think he is, by the way. One little word shall fell him, you know, that comes from his hymn. Thus, Luther goes on, thus this promise and this threat are very clear. See that? Promise and threat. And yet, they are also very indefinite. They leave the devil in such a state that he suspects all mothers of giving birth to the seed, although only one woman was to be the mother of the blessed seed, unquote. By the way, that comes from a commentary. The heading above the quote is this. The promised seed makes Satan afraid of all women. (laughs) If you read Luther, it probably helped you to laugh on that one. So God promises to destroy the works of the devil through a man who comes from a woman without a man. One who will come from a woman who was first deceived will demolish the first and chief deceiver that's genesis 315 now how does genesis or how should genesis 315 inform our interpretation of john 1231b first of all should it should we allow our understanding of genesis 315 or any other old testament text to help us interpret john 1231b Yes, okay? You realize some people, loudmouths too, in our day, would say no to that? Well, you can, but not first. Well, I don't care where you do it. You should use the Bible to help you interpret the Bible. I think it should be very clear by now that John 12, 31b and Genesis three fifteen are obviously related. Isn't it? Ob- Let's just say it. It's... Obvious. Our Lord has to have that interpretation, that understanding of Genesis 3.15 in his mind when he's saying these words. And he wants us to have Genesis 3.15 understood as a prophetic curse that has both judgment in it and mercy in the future, and the future has come upon the world in these words. Somehow, some way, our Lord gets the upper hand on the devil. And you say, well, he's God. He's, he's the God-man now, as he's speaking. Very God, very man. What, it, what is at first very perplexing is to consider the fact that he does this through death. That's a hard one to parse out. How can death be the demolition of the devil? Two weeks. But a little before that, how does the death of Christ destroy the destroyer? Have you ever thought of that? Why does Christ die in the first place? It seems at first sight that the devil, the prince of death, wins, doesn't it? Seems like the prince of death wins here. Why? Jesus died. But let's remember Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise your head. His heel. Okay, so the devil first got an upper hand on Adam through Eve. Through a woman, Mary, the last Adam, gets victory over the devil's deathly dealings while also satisfying divine justice due to our sins. I just introduced a new phrase, last Adam. I think it is absolutely crucial to understand Jesus here in this last Adam sense that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a first Adam, Adam the first, the husband of Eve, and there's a last last Adam, the husband of Eve. His bride, the church, our Lord Jesus. And we'll look in a couple weeks what Adam's response, Adam the first's responsibility was, and then compare those with our Lord's. And I think it'll help think through this more. But this, through a woman, Mary, this the last Adam getting victory over the devil's deathly dealings while also satisfying divine justice due to our sins, this has to be teased out. Somehow he's, getting, he's defeating the devil, the doctor of death. Do you want to call him that? I think we can in one sense. He's defeating the devil, but he's also satisfying divine justice at the same time. All of this must be seen as the obedience of the last Adam, our Lord, right? He's obeying. If I be lifted up, um, this death by crucifixion is actually the obedience of the Son of God. He's obeying divine justice. Unlike Adam the first, Adam the last destroys the devil by, dis- by obedience, and procures righteousness by obedience. Unlike Adam the first, Adam the last destroys the devil by obedience. We could say Adam the first destroyed mankind by disobedience, being duped we have to say, unlike Adam the first, Adam the last destroys the devil by obedience. He doesn't let the devil um, be his tempter to sin. Well, he does let him tempt him, okay? But he never gives in to the temptations, right? Remember that weird text? Why? Are you, why are you, what is that word? Why are you threatening us before the time? It's not threatening. Remember the demons? They said to the Lord at one point, why are you doing this to us now? It's not time for this. Torture? I think it was torture. Something like that. Why are you torturing us before the time? What in the world? Yeah, I think it's torture, one of the... Anyway, some of you know what I'm talking about. We're going to get there in two weeks. I think it's Luke 10 or 11. Why are you doing this to us now? Demons knew that the incarnate son of God had it in for him. But whatever he was going to do in the future, he wasn't obviously doing now. And they were complaining about what he was doing, casting demons out. Why do you think, why do you think the Lord cast demons out while he was on earth? Well, one of the reasons was to show his authority over them and to set the world up for the grand finale at the end. So unlike Adam the first, Adam the last destroys the devil by obedience, procures righteousness by obedience, and satisfies divine justice due to the first Adam's Disobedience. There's a lot going on at the cross. Never separate the crucifixion of our Lord from his obedience. He's obeying, he's doing what he is told. He's he's absorbing or exhausting divine wrath against him due to our sins. And then he he dies, right? Does his body see corruption? Is his death a failure? No, his death is due to divine justice aimed at us. He wasn't the cause of the guilt that he assumed. We were the cause of the guilt that he assumed. But he did assume our sins, our guilt. He is there as a substitute for us, right? But we can't look at his death like like he lost. You know why? Cuz he won. Did death keep him in his body in the grave? No. Did death keep his soul away from his body? No. Um, death's bands were ripped apart by the incarnate Son of God. This is not a loss due to death. This is a victory over it. No one can take my life from me. I give it up. And if I give it up, I can take it back. And it's exactly... Exactly what he did. Well, at some point in the future, I'm going to actually get to that passage. John 12, 31b. And try to figure out what it means. But I just told you what I think it means. A little of it. But the New Testament especially especially does that. Please forgive me. My wife texted me the text. Here it is. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with e- with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, it looks like. That's the text. Isn't that a weird thing? How much do the demons know? They knew that their son of God incarnate was going to torment them because of their wickedness. At some point, in the future, and whatever Christ was doing to them then, they thought, that's not fair. You're not playing by the rules. It's not supposed to happen now. Well, it didn't happen now. It did, but it didn't. We're going to see that too. Did he destroy the works of the devil? Yes. Are there any works of the devil still in existence? Yes. Both are true. Remember that line by Luther? He's God's devil. He's on it. You know that the devil is in and, and, and the, the, the usurped position he has taken by virtue of, of his fallen angelic power, which is pretty mighty. It's not almighty, but it's pretty. He's a scary individual. That is a form of judgment upon us. But now judgment is of this world. Somebody else is going to turn the tables on the so-called turf of the devil. He's the God of this world. Remember those redemptive reversals I was talking about, those ironies? It's like, well, here you have this omnipotent God. Couldn't he just said, you're done and start over? Yes, but he didn't. And the way he goes about repairing the damage done by the fall into sin and the curse is by the very ones that brought it upon themselves. The woman, in a mysterious way, is impregnated by the Holy Spirit's power coming upon her. The the Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2, hovered over the waters in in her belly, created this holy thing, is what it's called in Luke, I think. This holy one or holy thing. It's like, you know, this is why the Jews are going, what are you talking about? And the Greeks said, this is all foolishness. But this is the power of God. In weak, creaturely things, a man from the ancient Near Eastern world, born of an insignificant woman, and the ripple effect from his presence on the earth, it's with us every single day, isn't it? Something huge happened back then when he was lifted up. Massive, turned uh, the world inside out. The preacher is rambling, and he will close his sermon. Whatever these words mean, it's good news and bad news. Good news for for those who have the friend of sinners as their friend. Good news for believers, and bad news, obviously, for the prince of the power of the air. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to our souls. This is one of those sermons that's kind of all over the place to try to get our minds properly saturated with enough scriptural information to better understand these sobering words by Jesus. If I be lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast out. He was lifted up, and the prince of the world has been cast out. We ask that you would cause us as believers to fixate our souls on the hope of the Christian faith, the resurrection and the glorious Emmanuel's land to come, that uh, heavenly Jerusalem universalized all over the new earth that special presence of God with us in a way we've never experienced before. And now help us to sing in response to this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.